Well, Father, we pray that you will speak to us through your word. And as we discuss a topic that's near and dear to your heart, the church, I pray that the church will be more near and dear to our heart as well. So, Lord, speak through your word. I pray that this sermon will edify this body in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today has been deemed Celebration Sunday. Right Back in June, we had an all-church get-together for Sunday school, and the emphasis that we wanted to pour into our church as we kind of emerged from this, well, seeming never-ending pandemic is to regather, revitalize, and rebuild. And so one of the things that we are going to celebrate today, tonight, is a completion or near completion of our children's wing. So we are thankful for God's sacrifice, well, for your sacrifice and God's provision for all of those things. But today I wanted to talk about this concept of regathering, regathering into the local church. And uh, as I've been thinking about it, there has been some increasing resistance to the idea of regathering among people who are affiliated with the church. One thing with the pandemic is that it kind of forced many of us to become online TV preachers. I never thought I'd have to be reduced to that, but here I was, right, living the dream. And so for a season, right, for about 12 weeks, you all sat on your couches wearing your bunny slippers, sipping your carrot cup, watching me preach to you through the medium of a television screen or computer screen. And some people really started to like it to the point where some church futurists, they're, they're talking about how in the future, we're going to see online church as just a staple. So, some churches, uh, they have their online gatherings and their in-person gatherings that exist side by side. And so what's happening is that many people see gathering in a church on Sunday as optional. So that's one way that regathering is starting to be resisted. But there's another, too. There's, there's kind of been a wave of what we call deconstruction in the church, deconversion, people leaving the, the faith. And, and there's this steady stream of bad news about how the church is irredeemably broken. And so there's a reason why people are leaving the faith. One author says that the reasons why are understandable. You have abuse, cover-up of abuse, racial strife, lack of integrity, membership declines, partisan divisions, and divisions over disagreements about how extensive these divisions are. An abusive leader in this corner, a negligent board over here, a world-renowned apologist accused of raping and trafficking women over there. And so many people are backing away from the assembly, and often when you back away from the bride of Christ, you often back away from the bridegroom while you're at it. And so this kind of poses the question, right? Why do we gather? Why should we regather? Why should we devote our Sunday mornings to sit in, in this room singing the songs for the same people, having communion, listening to the sermon, and so on. Why should we regather? And the reason is, the church is worth it. 
the church is worth it. And to back this up, we're going to all open up the Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 16. This is Jesus' first mention of the church, and he explains why the church is worth it. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now this passage, Jesus is moving towards the end of his ministry, and he knows that his time is short. He says in 1621, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus, he, he knows he's not going to be around forever. He knows that he needs to delegate this ministry to his disciples. And he's going to do so through an organism known as the church. Now, I want to make some preliminary observations, okay? The first one is, he says, I will build my church. From the perspective of, of Jesus, the church isn't around yet. It's something that is, is future. We learn that in Acts, it's going to start in, on the day of Pentecost. Number two, Jesus says, I will build my church. It's not your church. It's not Peter's church. It's not even God the Father's church. It's Jesus' church. This church belongs to Jesus. And then the third one is, I will build my church. Now, do you guys know what church literally means? Ecclesia, assembly. Assembly, it's a gathered people. He didn't say, I will build my temple, I will build my synagogue, I will build my assembly, his, his church. And it's multiple people coming together. In fact, if we were to look at what is the church in the global sense, it is basically the, all the assembly of the true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that began at Pentecost. Now, that is the universal church, but there's also a sense where um, the church is local. Like when we meet together, this is the local church. This is the local assembly. Now, what's kind of interesting right now is people ask, can you be part of a virtual assembly instead of a local assembly? And I'll give you the quick answer. No, no. 
You see, one of the reasons that we come here together is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and that's kind of hard to do virtually. Now, last year in July, I'm not sure if you guys watched, I was, I was so desperate, I watched the NBA. I was looking for any sports, right? It was that or watching cornhole. So I watched the NBA finals. And during the finals, they try to simulate a finals atmosphere. And so you have these guys playing basketball, and then behind them is like this big screen where they would pipe in images from fans watching on their computer. And the goal was to try to simulate a live finals atmosphere. And it was lame. <laughs> right, Dixon? I mean, it was, it was just lame. I mean, and then they're celebrating, they have all the fireworks, the epic music, but it wasn't the same without the fans. Right, so you can do that all you want, but the energy that happens with live human contact is encouraging and stimulating, and that's the way God's designed us. Secondly, if you kind of have this idea that you can do just kind of virtual church, it's almost like I come to church and I sing my songs, I take my communion, and then I listen to my sermon, and then I go home. So the, the church is more than the service. It's about the interconnected relationships that we have with each other, is having the face-to-face conversation. And, and when you look at these family relations, I mean, can you imagine what would happen to your family dynamics, especially your young families, if you only communicated to each other through Zoom and texting? I mean, your four-year-old, you'd have no relationship with him whatsoever. Right? There is something about human contact that comes out when we regather. The church is called the church because it is an assembly. And now, with the onset of COVID and all the variants, get used to it, there is now a heightened risk in coming to church. Isn't there? You come to church, you come to the crowd, and you may get sick. So why do you come? Now, if it's not sickness, it might be persecution in the future. There's always been a risk with gathering with God's people, but why come to church? Well, the simple answer is, it's worth it. The church is worth it. And I'm going to give you four reasons why the church is worth it. Number one, the church is founded on certain truth. Two, the church is led by divinely appointed leadership. Number three, the church will never be destroyed. And fourth, the church mediates eternal realities. Okay, so I'll take these one by one. As we talk about regathering, why regather? Because the church is worth it. Why is the church, church worth it? Well, because the church is founded on certain truth. Now, on May 26, 1997, uh, the police in Rancho Santa Fe, California, and this is where all these weird things happen, came upon a building where they found 39 bodies of the Heaven's Gate cult. All of them were wearing matching outfits. They're all reclining in their bunks. And all of them had $5 and three quarters in a special pocket. You see, they had a belief that behind the Hale-Bopp comet, was a spaceship. And if they committed ritual suicide, they'd be transported to this spaceship, and the $5.75 was to pay for their interplanetary tolls. 
So you, you have a, a situation where these people clearly had a sincere belief, but they were sincerely wrong. And so what happens is people look at this and, and they think, well, that's like all religion, isn't it? You look at Heaven's Gate here, we'll say Christianity over here. And that cultural pressure uh, might cause people to think, well, what if we're wrong? Maybe we ought to step back on, on our commitment. Now, Peter was in a, in a similar situation. Now, remember when, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Nobody was saying Messiah. You see, originally there was some messianic speculation. But as Jesus started to gain some more powerful enemies, uh, people backed off on that. You know, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's Jeremiah, maybe he's a prophet in some way. They would not say the M word with Jesus. And so Jesus asked Peter, and the disciples, who do you say that I am? And he makes the statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We know who you are. I mean, that's quite a statement, isn't it? My lot is cast with you, Jesus. I will follow you. I have a firm conviction, even though these people are backing away from you, even though you are gaining these powerful enemies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He made a very certain declaration, and this declaration, he wouldn't always hold to it, but it was verified by the miracle of the resurrection as a historical fact and reality. And so you look at one of the reasons why I love the church, and you should love the church, why the church is worth it, is because we proclaim a certain truth. You can go all in because you know that this message is worth being all in for. I mean, look at some of the other assemblies that are out there. Rotary Club. Nothing wrong with the Rotary Club. They do good things. They're all, it's all business, and pro, business leaders and professionals who try to nurture humanitarian good, bring goodwill and peace around the world. But it's just a club. You look at the NRA. Right? They're dedicated towards uh, gun rights advocacy, they help with marksmanship and, and safety and training. But are they worth going all in for? How about the Sierra Club? You're, they're committed to exploring and enjoying and protecting the planet, advocating green energy, reducing carbon emissions. But in the end, it's just a club, right? So when you look at all of these different clubs that are out there, the only one that's really predicated on certain truth that will continue for eternity is the local church. So when we regather, we're going to be part of an assembly that will transcend life itself and continue on forever and ever. All true believers in this room, we will be together forever. And if that concerns you, know that we'll all be changed and sanctified and more pleasant. So it will be... a We'll have better times ahead, okay? <laughs> now, secondly, the church has divinely appointed leadership. In 1618, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, this verse is a little bit controversial because you have many stalwart people who, are, who believe that the Catholic church is enormously wrong. And let me say from the outset, 
that the Pope is an invention of man. There is no precedent in the Bible where Jesus has delegated his, his complete authority to Peter, who would then delegate it to somebody else and delegate it to somebody else, okay? I'm just saying that from the outset. But with that said, we can't let our fear of that conclusion see what I believe is a very obvious play on words, right? Do you know, know, do you know what Peter means, literally? It means rock, right? And he says, you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Whenever we look at uh, this analogy of building the church, you have Jesus being the cornerstone, but you also have the foundation of the prophets and the teachers. And, And I believe what Jesus is saying here is that you who are getting it, you will be part of the foundation to build the church. And when you look at the book of Acts, for instance, Peter was the leader. Remember when they're all kind of cowering? Well, they weren't necessarily cowering, but it's before Pentecost, and they're trying to figure out, who do we get to replace Judas? Who led the discussion? Peter did. When the Holy Spirit came down, and everyone was speaking in tongues, and all the onlookers were mocking them as being drunk, who addressed the crowd? It was Peter. When Ananias and Sapphira pretended to give more than they did, who executed church discipline? It was Peter. Who introduced the Samaritans to the gospel? It was Peter. Who introduced Cornelius and the Gentiles to the gospel? It was Peter. I mean, Peter wasn't the Pope, but he was a leader. And eventually, the other disciples would participate in this leadership as well, as they would be entrusted with binding and loosing. But once Peter and the apostles faded out, there was a, a new generation of leaders that was to be raised up. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, we read of elders and elder qualifications. In Titus 1, 5 through 9, we read, This is why I left you in Crete. This is Paul talking to Titus that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gives a list of the qualifications. You see, part of what makes a church a church is they have divinely appointed leadership. Now, in one sense, like the government, as John mentioned in our Q&A, our discussion, the government has divinely appointed leadership to run the country, but... But the Lord appoints leadership within this church to nurture your soul. And these leaders are God's gift to you. Now, I'm not being presumptuous here. I know it's kind of a sticky situation where I'm telling you guys, essentially, the Bible says that I'm God's gift to you, right? It can come across wrong. But let me back it up with Scripture. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is speaking about how through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, part of this victory over sin and death was the procurement of gifts to given to the church. And these gifts are stated in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Notice he didn't give prophecy, evangelism, shepherding and teaching, not spiritual gifts, 
begifted men to lead the church, to do the following, verse 11, or verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, the, the church has been given leaders to protect the flock. And this is why this passage here is not talking about the universal church. You can't go around and say, well, Chuck Swindoll or Andy Stanley or Alistair Begg, that's my pastor. They don't even know you exist. How could they be your pastor? But these are gifted men given to a local church to nurture your spiritual growth. Now, one aspect of this pandemic that has been culture shaping is there's been, um, I would say, an increasing distrust for just leadership in general. The government is changing their mind. They, they want to steal our rights. The CDC recommends this one day, then this the other day. And if we're going to rely on anyone, it needs to kind of be me. I mean, there's kind of a surging populism, populism in our culture, right? And it could be really tempting to take the cynicism towards leadership, this distrust of leadership that's applied towards the government and other leaders and possibly apply it to church leaders as well. I mean, don't people do that? I went to this church and the pastor only talked about money. You know, these guys at this church, they act like they're leading a cult. I don't trust them. I trust the Lord, but not these leaders. But consider an alternate universe where there are no leaders. What happens to the organization? Years ago, I had the privilege of coaching Jake's soccer team his first soccer team. And I remember watching these four and five-year-olds run around the field, stumbling over the ball, tackling each other, and committing all kinds of non-soccer fouls. And I thought to myself, what would happen if there was nobody to coach these kids? And I, I thought about it for a while, and I concluded they look like the KU football team. It's tragic, really. Tragic. I know. Hey, I love KU. I'm just being real here. But that's the thing. When, when there's leadership and strong leadership, everybody flourishes, don't they? Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And there's a certain protection in knowing that the right people are feeling this, filling this leadership vacuum. Because if the right people don't lead the if the right people don't lead, then, then who will, right? Self-appointed and self-assertive people will just kind of try to fill in the void and take it their direction, and who knows? If you find a church with good godly leadership, that is a gift. And I know personally, I benefited from great leadership. One of my spiritual mentors was Jack Hughes, a pastor of Grace Bible Church and then Calvary Bible Church, and he kind of took me by the ear he smacked me upside down. I mean, his wife and him you know, both took turns beating me, and I needed it. 
and shaping me, but they helped me to become who I was. They brought out the, the best in me, right? And, that, and that's what good leaders do. They know that their role is not about you making them look great, but using their service to help you make God look great. And that's the heart of, of Scott and Rick, John and I, and, and it's kind of a scary task when you think about it. But part of the reason why I love the church is God gives gifted men to lead the church for our benefit. That's not something you could get online. The third reason why the church is worth it is because the church is indestructible. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, depending on your translation, you might see gates of hell or gates of Hades. Now, if it's gates of hell, you would think Satan and his minions are always attacking the church, which is true. But what is probably more accurate is gates of Hades. Now, anybody here familiar with Greek mythology? Hades is the god of the underworld. And the idea is that when some poor soul dies and crosses the river Styx, they enter into this dark underworld governed by this this dread god Hades, and the gates are closed behind them. They're an eternal Alcatraz at that point. And so when he's talking about the gates of Hades, he's really talking about the reality of death. And so when, when Jesus says, and the gates of Hades, he's using the common cultural expression of death will not destroy it. Death will never, ever defeat the church. I mean, have you ever thought about how many organizations you might have worked for that are no longer around? I worked for Joe's Barn Country Buffet. Anybody ever been there? Well, it's been, oh, there you go. All right. Closed many, many years ago. Circuit City, ever shop there? I worked there. Gone. Farmore, gone. You look at other companies. Pan Am, gone. Woolworths, gone. E.F. Hutton, gone. Standard Oil. Someday in the future, Amazon, gone. Google, gone. Facebook, gone. Walmart, gone. Businesses will collapse. They're not going to have Coca-Cola forever. Things will come and go. Countries will rise and fall. But the church will endure forever. The church will exist on this planet until Jesus comes back and then the church will become the official bride of Christ in eternity future. One of the reasons why we love the church is the church will always be around. Death will not defeat it. The fourth reason why the church is worth it is because the church mediates the kingdom. Now, when you hear this term mediation, it's, it's kind of a go-between. Right? And, and in the Old Testament, the people who functioned as mediators were priests. They represented God to the people and then the people to God. Now, with the church, we mediate the kingdom. And by kingdom, that's just basically a fancy uh, expression that says it's where God rules. Someday, God's kingdom will come, right? That's part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus will come back. He'll wipe out all opposition and enemies. He will reign on this planet forever. 
And in the meantime, his kingdom comes whenever a soul surrenders their life to the Lord, right? They are now ruled by King Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at 16, 19 through 20. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This is a response to Peter's confession. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And so he says, you are upon this rock, upon this rock I'll build my church. And then he gives two responsibilities. Number one, you have the kingdom, you have the keys of the kingdom. And then secondly, you have the ability to bind and loose. So we'll look at the keys of the kingdom first. Now on my keychain in my bag, I have a very special key. It is a Flint Hills Bible Church master key. I can go anywhere. When George is out of the office, I can open George's door and borrow some books. I can go to the sound room. When nobody's around, I can even go into the women's bathroom. I have absolute total access to this key, and sometimes I show up, and there's people parked outside because they don't have the key. But I have the key to the kingdom of Flint Hills Bible Church, and I can turn it and open it and allow people to come in. And so when you look at this idea of keys of the kingdom, given that the kingdom is this future eternal state where Jesus rules, Peter has been given the keys. And do you know what the key is? The key is really the message. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is something that Yahweh revealed to Peter. It's a divine revelation. It's really the key of the gospel. It's the key of the gospel. When Jesus scolds the scribes and the Pharisees, he says in Matthew 23, 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Right? They're closing the door, not opening it. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. But Peter was able to open the gates of heaven. Right? Remember when he spoke in Pentecost, after Pentecost? 3,000 people converted. They entered it through the key of the gospel. When he ran into the Samaritans, Samaritans were, were despised by the Jews. He opened the gate so that the Samaritans could enter the kingdom. When he found Cornelius at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he opened the gates so that Gentiles can come in. And you know, that's something that we do right now. We, through the gospel, turn the key so that anybody who would embrace the gospel and walk through the narrow gate can enter the kingdom of heaven. We mediate God's reality. Now, you often hear um, church strategists ask this question. You might have heard this before. If Flint Hills Bible Church was wiped off the map, would Emporia miss us? And this is the insinuation. If your church is not doing after-school tutoring, if you're not, you know, if you don't have a, cloak, a coat closet or some sort of food distribution network, if you're not advocating for social justice, then Emporia is not going to miss you. But you know what the real answer to that is? 
Yeah, they would miss us because who else? And there's other faithful churches here, but that would be one less church that would have the keys of the kingdom to open the door to the gospel. Right? The greatest thing that we can do is to proclaim the soul-changing, life-transforming message of the gospel so that we can bring people from darkness to light, from being outcast to members of the kingdom. Okay, so that's the first thing. The keys of the kingdom, the key is the gospel that opens the door for salvation. But then Jesus also talks about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Now, if you're a careful Bible scholar, and if you kind of know the gospel of Matthew, do you know where else that passage is used? Where else that passage is used? I'll read it to you. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I tell you, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, just to, we'll just pause right there before I finish. This is what we call church discipline. If you see somebody in sin, you confront them. If they don't listen, they don't repent, you take a witness. If they still don't, you, take a, uh, you present it to the church as a rescue effort. And if they still don't repent you cast them out. And then this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Sound familiar? And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now is that kind of power restricted to Jesus or Peter or the disciples? Look how general he gets in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this is a church, a local church, right? When you tell it to the church, it's not telling it to the universal church, but a local body. Now, I want to make some observations here. Number one, the church has the ability to define sin. Right? If you see a brother in sin... The church has the ability to say, yep, that's a sin. And usually in church discipline, it's an obvious sin. It's not, we're going to discipline them for the sin of pride. It would be adultery, theft, clear unethical behavior. Secondly, the church has the ability to discern whether or not somebody has committed said sin, right? You can't just go around as a church and say, who am I to judge? Well, you have the authority and the mandate to do it here. And then thirdly, the church has the ability and the responsibility to discern whether or not the person who was confronted has actually repented, right? There's a lot of times where, oh, I repent, but they still continue on with it, right? So you see that within this command, there's a lot of discretion and a lot of responsibility given to the leaders and the institution of the local church. And as we keep on reading the epistles, if somebody utters some sort of false gospel or is a false teacher, they are also to be disciplined out of the church. So in all of this, what you see is that the church not only proclaims the gospel, but we protect the gospel. 
We protect the integrity of the gospel, right? Like one of the things that unbelievers will point to the church is, well, I don't want to go to this church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites, right? And when churches look the other way and they don't practice church discipline, when they don't use the keys of the kingdom and they don't use their binding and loosing authority, they open themselves up to that charge that discredits the work of the gospel. And so when you look at the church, I mean, this is an amazing statement that when somebody goes all the way through church discipline, the judgment of the church and the judgment of the elders is confirmed in heaven. If they are faithfully disciplined out of a church, in God's eyes, they're damned. But at the same time, the church can open the keys of the kingdom when people come to faith in Jesus Christ What's true here will be true in heaven as well. I mean, that is an awesome reality that no other institution can do. Through the local church, eternal realities can be mediated. So all this to say, I mean, when you kind of go down the list of the church will never be destroyed... Right? The church has biblically ordained leadership that mandates eternal realities. The church is loved and embraced by Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you love the church? I mean, as often, you ever heard this said, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. That's like saying, Dave, I love you, but I can't stand your wife. You think I'm going to stand for that? To tell Jesus I love you, but not your bride? You think Jesus is going to go, okay, well, at least you love me. Or, or what about if somebody says, I love the universal church. I just don't love the local church. That's like saying, I love Nestle chocolate bars. I just don't love Nestle chocolate chips. Don't you know that the chocolate chips make the chocolate bar? And usually there, there's something deeper there. They might have been hurt by some church, and, and everyone, they have some reason why the church failed them, not the other way around. And in an attempt to justify themselves, uh, they will embellish the sins of others and minimize their own role in what they did. Well, this pastor was just really mean to me. He was really harsh. Well, that's because you're screaming at him in the office, and to get a word in, he had to raise his voice. This church, all they talked about was money. Well, maybe you were just so upset about that that somebody would dare ask you to part with a single dollar for some charitable cause that you blamed it on them instead of your own greedy heart. I've been hurt by somebody in this church. You don't think you've hurt other people? You see, you have to get past it. The church is worth it. I want to give you one more passage to chew on. In Matthew 20, 28, Paul gives an emotional farewell address to the Ephesian elders, and this is what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
See, Jesus loved the church enough that he was willing to shed his own blood to purchase it. And if Jesus loves the church that much, if he was willing to sacrifice that much for the church, then we should as well. The church is a gift from the Lord. It is one of the great benefits that we have for being a Christian. And for those of you who are kind of online and just kind of, this is my church, let me just challenge you to really pray about these words because you are missing out. You distance yourself from the church. You stop regathering. You start ignoring the bride of Christ. What makes you think that you'll be faithful to the bridegroom in the long haul? Jesus loves the church and all those who love Jesus will love what he loves and hate what he hates. We hate sin because sin put Jesus on the cross, but we also love Jesus because Jesus died to purchase the church. And so as we kind of move forward, as we look at all of these difficult decisions, possible persecution, perhaps getting sick again from COVID, and you ask yourself on that Sunday morning, is it worth it, provided you're symptom-free, by the way, is it worth it? You say... Yes, the church is worth it. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so grateful for the church. What a gift. Help us to prize it as you prize it. Help us to see it as a gift that it is. And as we move forward through uncertain futures, we thank you that the church has an unchanging message. It is indestructible, governed by godly leaders, and it mediates the kingdom of heaven. What an honor to be a part of this work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.